So it's been a, a few weeks um, since the last time that we had studied Genesis. Uh, just as a recap um, from the last time we had studied Genesis 33, uh, 34, and 35. So in Genesis 33, we spoke about how Jacob uh, was returning from uh, the land of uh, his relatives, uh, his relative, uh, his, his mother's brother, Laban, and how he had served there for 20 years and how he was now returning again to meet with Esau, his brother. Uh, he originally had fled to go there, running away from his brother because he had stolen the blessing of his father Isaac from him. And now he is returning again uh, home to the land of Canaan. Uh, and he is anticipating meeting his brother. And we spoke about what happened when, when they met and so on, and how Esau was, was very amenable to him. He was very kind to him. Um, and they were to dwell together in peace. Uh, but they didn't stay together because Jacob uh, told Esau that he has a lot of family and, and children and his wives and a lot of possessions. So he wasn't going to go with Esau, but he was going to stay and dwell in the area called Shechem, okay? Then in Genesis 34, we read about the incident that happened with uh, one of Jacob's daughters, Dina, and how she went out and was kind of socializing with the people of the land and how uh, Shechem, who is the son of Hamor, uh, raped her and wanted to marry her. Uh, and then the brothers, the other brothers uh, of, uh, of Dina, when they found out about this, they were very upset, and so they set a trap in order for them to go and to kill Shechem and all of his family, okay? And they took their possessions, and that happened in Genesis chapter 34. And then in Genesis chapter 35, we read about how God is reconfirming the covenant again uh, with Jacob, just like he had done with Abraham and Isaac before him. Okay, so today, God willing, we're going to look at three chapters, also Genesis 36, Genesis 36 is all about uh, genealogy, actually. So we'll go through it pretty quickly. It's essentially the genealogy of Esau, okay, who was living in the land called Edom. Edom means uh, red, and it's named after him because he was red, he had red, hairy hair. And so he was called Edom or, or Esau and Edom. And he was living in this place, which was named after him and um, essentially speaking about how he is his own nation and all of the people that came from him. That's chapter 36. Chapter 37 is the famous story where we are introduced to the figure of Joseph um, as a child and what happened with him and his brothers. Um, so that should be pretty familiar. And then chapter 38 uh, is speaking about yet another incident that happened with Judah specifically. Um, and, and we'll speak about that. So in chapter 36, it says, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibian, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nabajah. So if you remember back actually in Genesis 26, the Bible mentioned that Esau had taken two wives and that they were from among the, the pagan women and that they were like a great source of um, you know, of, of sadness to his parents because he had married these uh, Gentile women. Um, here, actually, the names that are mentioned are different from the names that were mentioned in chapter 26. So some say that these women had more than one name, which was very common at the time for people to have more than one name, um, or it could be additional women that he's marrying here uh, compared to them. So, so now it's just uh, really essentially the whole chapter is... Uh, is genealogy. So I'm going to just read it um, without really much commentary. Okay. So it says, Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimath bore Raul, and Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. Very similar, actually, to the situation with Abraham and Lot, right? When they were living together, the land was not able to support them both, so they had to live separately, okay? So uh, Esau dwelt in Mount Seir, 
Okay, and then it says Esau is Edom, right? So that the land is named after him. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons: Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, and Ruel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Now Tima was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Ruul, Nahab, Azirah, Shema, and Mizah. These were the sons of Basimah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau, Jehush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, were Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatim, and Chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz and the land of Edom. They were the sons of Ada. These were the sons of Ruul, Esau's son, Chief Nahaf, Chief Zerah, Chief Shema, and Chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Ruul in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Aholibama, Esau's wife, Chief Jehush, Chief Jalem, and Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholibama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Ena. And these were the sons of Esau, who was Edom, and these were their chiefs. Yes. Yeah, it's like there's an introduction, and then it goes into like more depth and continues like that. But yeah, there's there's a lot of repetition. I think they're chiefs because they were like responsible, like they were like they were high ranking because they were close to to Esau, right? Because they were like his sons and his sons' sons, so they they would be like the the high ranking officials, right? And so that's why they were chiefs, like they were heads of, you know, yeah. Um, these were the sons of Seir, the Horite who inhabited the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. And these were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Horai and Hemem. Lotan's sister was Timnah. And these were the sons of Shobal, Elvan, uh, Menahath, Ebal, Shifo, and Onam. These were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Ana. This was Ana who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. These were the children of Ana, Dishan, and Aholibama, the daughter of Ana. These were the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Chiran. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaban, and, and Nakan. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Ana, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhabah. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham, the land uh, of the land of the Timonites, reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avid. When Hadad died, Samla of Masaraka reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place, and the name of his city was Pab. His wife's name was Mehatabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mizahat. These were the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their families and their places by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Elvath, Chief Jehev, Chief Aholibama, Chief Elah, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Timon, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, Chief Eram. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. Okay. Why do you think that the whole Bible would even include a chapter like this? Yeah, it's actually very useful, right? Because in modern times, you know, people who question the authenticity of the Bible and they say, you know what, we, we think the Bible is just made up, right? So when you take some uh, 
like historical documents outside of the Bible, extra biblical documents. And you look at the history and the names on the genealogies of people that lived in history from documents outside the Bible. And then you can correlate them and connect them to the names and the events that are happening inside the Bible. Then it shows that there is like, that it's authentic. Like there's actually, it's not just, first of all, it's, it's dated to the time that this is happening, right? It's, it's, there's historical information there that matches historical information outside. And actually there have been many times where, um, let's say the Bible will mention the name of a city, right? That's in a certain location. And then people will say, well, there is no real city in this place. There was never found a city in this place. And they actually say, well, you know, the Bible's wrong, actually. But then years later, there'll be some archeological discovery in that place where they dig up a, a city that was actually in that place and they discover that it's the name of the city that was there. I think I mentioned before, like this actually happened with Pontius Pilate. Like there was no, um, there was no historical documents that mentioned the name of Pontius Pilate. And so when people read about Pontius Pilate in the Bible, who is a pretty prominent figure, they're like, well, you would expect there to be some, some something. So people were even saying that the Bible was just made it up, okay? But then there was some archaeological discovery where they found the name of Pontius Pilate actually engraved like on, on different ruins and things, right? So again, corroborating what the Bible's saying. So even though it seems to us kind of dry to read through these names and maybe we don't get much out of it, um, but for if we were to really study the history and to study the genealogies of the people that we know from all these you know, historical documents, it would actually be very interesting to find that the names that are mentioned here correspond to names of real historical figures that we find outside the Bible as well. Yes. I mean, I'm definitely not an expert in that, and I, I don't know really what direction to point you, but I know that a lot of the, the, the ancient documents that are found from the time period um, would have like different names on them. So for instance, they go and discover scrolls. I know there's like entire libraries where they have all of these, like, like for instance, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they find other kinds of scrolls, right? They'll find other historical documents from these different civilizations. Like all the stuff that we learn about, for instance, in history class in school, right? Well, where did we get all these names, right? We got them from historical documents that were discovered, right? So, so going all the way back, Right, so so it's it's very likely to find a lot of these names that you can then grab. But I personally don't know like where you would actually get get that. But I'm sure if we did some research on the internet, we could find some some good resources. Yes. There's an archaeological Bible. A what? Archaeological oh, yeah. Bible. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's uh, it's like the new international version. Uh, I think Abuna Abuna Arsenius talked about it. Like uh, there's an archaeological Bible. Where, like, when you That's great. I, I never heard of the archaeological Bible, but yeah, that sounds like a really cool, a really cool resource. Okay, uh, so that was chapter 36. So 37, okay, is maybe a little bit more interesting, right? So this is where we, we start, um, we're introduced to the person of Joseph, okay, who was one of the most important figures in the Old Testament, because he is a messianic figure in a lot of ways, right? We see actually in him uh, a type of Christ, okay, and we'll, we'll, we'll highlight how that is in his story. Um, his life is really the link between two different eras, all right, and that's another reason he's so important. Up until now, we've been in what's called the era of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs. It's the early time of the initial formation of Israel as a family. It's really Israel as a family. You can't say about them that they're a nation by any means, right? A people. They're not really a people. They're just a big family up until this point. Joseph is the link that essentially will, will, will be the bridge between Israel as the family of Israel and Israel as the nation of Israel. Okay, so there's about to be a big change that's going to happen. Like God was waiting and preparing, right? And now you're going to see some things happening on a much grander scale than what's happened before. 
all the things that were really happening before, up until this point, okay, to, to from Abraham's family has really been local to his family. You know, we think about people in his family getting married, people in his family moving from place to place, people in his family, God is speaking to them, so on, right? It's, it's, it's all preparation. God is making promises, right? He's saying, you will become a great nation. You will have descendants greater than the sand of the sea. You will do this and this. But we never really saw that happen yet, right? All we saw is different events happening in the life of the people of this family. These are the patriarchs, okay? Now we begin to see the execution of the plan of God to expand this Israel from being simply a family to being a mighty nation, okay? And how God is going to do it. So it says, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Remember, so when he returned from uh, Haran, okay, after he was there with his family uh, for 20 years with Laban, uh, now he's returned, he came back to the land of Canaan. This is the land of promise. This is the land that God had told Abraham to move to here. As this is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them to his father. Okay, so who are Bilhah and Zilpah? Yeah, so they were concubines, concubines of Jacob, right? So even though here it's calling them wives, right? But, but technically they were concubines. Concubine is like a, like a lower rank. Of wife, she's not treated as an equal. She's not treated as, um, you know, like of the same rank and status as a wife. Okay, uh, so so there were four women, right? There was uh, Leah. She's the one who had, who bore the the sons first, right? And then there was Bilhah, Zilpah, and Rachel. Okay, uh, Rachel was the other wife. So Leah and Rachel are the wives. Bilhah and Zilpah. Or the concubines. So it's important to understand that the, 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 remember, the idea of inheritance was very, very important, right? And the children of concubines were not considered of the same status and rank as the children of wives, right? So the children of concubines do not inherit. The, 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 the right of inheritance goes to the sons of the wives, not to the sons of the concubines. Okay? Yes. So he had sons outside Rachel and Leah, right? Yeah. Or like including, excluding the 12? No, no. Of the 12. The 12 are made up of some from the concubines and some from the, the wives. But, but if, you, if, you, if you look at it from the perspective of just the 12 sons, Okay, of those 12 sons, right, the ones that are from the wives are considered higher ranking status than the ones from the concubines, okay? So there was, uh, in, you know, just for that reason alone, there was going to be some tension, okay, between the sons of the concubines and the sons of the wives. So Joseph, he was the son of who? Rachel, the wife, right? So he, and he had a very, very uh, like special place in Jacob's heart because Rachel died, okay? And, and while giving birth to him, okay? Wait, no, no, no. No, giving birth to Benjamin. Benjamin, Benjamin. Sorry, sorry. But yeah, but, but both Benjamin and Joseph, right? Had, had a, like, they were very special because they reminded Jacob of Rachel, okay? Because she had died at this point. Um, and also remember, Rachel was the wife that he loved the most. He, he never actually wanted to marry Leah, right? Leah was not his first choice. Kind of Leah was forced on him by her father, but he really wanted to marry Rachel. And even when we spoke about how when, uh, when Jacob was returning to meet with Esau and he was worried that Esau was going to harm him and he put everybody in these different companies, the very last company, the one that was the safest, the one that was like the least at risk, was Rachel and her sons, okay? So, um, so, so, so here, all growing up, there is this tension between the sons, okay? They don't, and especially toward Joseph, 
because right now Joseph is older and their father is treating him in a very special way, right? Because Joseph was the son of a wife, he would receive double the inheritance. Okay, why is that? The eldest son, okay, is supposed to receive double the inheritance of every other son. That's what's supposed to happen. Who was the eldest son? It was Reuben, right? Reuben was the firstborn of Leah. He is the eldest of the 12, okay? Why, and we talked about this in one of the Q&A sessions, why did not Reuben would receive the inheritance, the double portion? He took his father's concubine, right? Which was a disgraceful thing to, to be done. So he lost, this happened in uh, Genesis 35, actually, okay, Bilha. So because he did this, he lost the status of the eldest son. So the, the status of the eldest son would now go to the eldest son of the next wife, which is Rachel. So Rachel's eldest son is Joseph. So now Joseph is the one who has this. This is why when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's confusing, because you can count the 12 tribes of Israel in more than one way. How many sons did Jacob have? Well, he had 12. But how many territories did they have when they dwelt in the land? Well, they also had 12. But Levi didn't have one, right? Because Levi's inheritance was to serve the Lord as the priests, right? So how come there were still 12 territories? If, if then you would imagine there would only be 11, right? Because Levi didn't have a territory. Because Joseph got two. And that's why there is no territory of Joseph. There's a territory of Manasseh and Ephraim, who are his sons. So, so it's essentially Joseph gets two. They're not named after him. They're named after his sons, but he gets two. Okay, so Joseph has a special status, right? And so all of the other brothers, it's easy for them to kind of not like him. So he he would be he would inherit. He would be first in line for inheritance, the sons, more than the, 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 the sons of the wives, not the sons of the concubines. It's, a, it's, 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 a, it's like a concubine is kind of like a slave. Not, not, not exactly a slave, but like a servant, not a free woman. She's not free. She's, she's, she's kind of doing a job, right? not treated as an equal like a wife. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, also made him a tunic of many colors. Okay, so remember Rachel had a very hard time conceiving. Leah was conceiving from the beginning and she conceived many times. Rachel had a hard time conceiving. So, so for him, those sons of Rachel, right, were precious to him because he was old at the time when he had, he had Joseph and Benjamin, right? Because Rachel did not conceive right away. And like I said, Rachel was his preferred wife. This family is plagued with this idea of favoritism, right? From, from, from way at the beginning, you know, the way that Isaac was uh, treating, like Isaac preferred Esau and, Re and Rebecca preferred uh, Jacob, okay? And, and now you have Jacob is preferring certain of his sons over other sons. And so all this favoritism that we see happening in this family has been a source of conflict, division, destruction from the beginning. And, and here it's happening again, okay? But when the church fathers speak about Joseph, okay, you can, you, you can speak about it from the spiritual perspective, which is um, the prophetic perspective of what are all these different characters represent Okay, and, 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 and when you think about this in a prophetic way, okay, so from a spiritual perspective, the idea that uh, Jacob loves Joseph, Jacob in this sense represents God the Father, right, and Joseph represents the Son, okay, because remember we said Joseph is a messianic figure. So in this spiritual perspective, like when the church fathers speak about this, they say that this love that uh, Jacob has for Joseph represents the love that the father has for his son. Okay. Um, here, like I'll, I'll describe more about this, this spiritual analogy. Okay. So um, 
Joseph, we know, he's going to enter Egypt as a slave, right? He's going to be sold into slavery. Um, just as Christ, all right, he entered into the world, right? Like under punishment for the salvation of the world, right? Again, like representing kind of the incarnation. And he, and he came into the world to take the people of God out of slavery to the promised land. This is what Christ did. Christ incarnated, okay, as a slave in the sense that he is taking on the human nature, okay? He is suffering in order to take us, the people, out of slavery into the promised land, okay? And this is essentially what Joseph is doing. He goes into Egypt as a slave, okay? And that became a way for his family to survive the famine that was going to come so that they would come out of Egypt, okay, as a mighty nation so that God would lead them to the promised land. So in that sense, Joseph is, is a messianic figure, okay? The tunic that, uh, uh, this tunic of many colors, okay, and again, like this is, the idea of having a tunic of many colors, maybe nowadays it's like all of our clothes are colorful, maybe not mine, but everybody else's clothes are colorful, right? And we take for granted that there's, you know, colorful clothes, but at those times, like this is very expensive to have, you know, clothes that are made like this. So it's like very honoring, honorable for someone to wear something like you would find the people who are like royalty and people who are very wealthy would be wearing clothes like this, not just anybody. Okay. So, um, these, like when the church fathers speak about this, again, because Joseph is a messianic figure, they say that the, the tunic he wears represents the church and all the different colors represents the many nations that are united together, right, in the body of Christ. Okay. So Joseph, he enters into servitude, right, because of that coat, because his brothers were jealous of him because of that coat. And so they sold him to slavery because of that coat, okay? So it's the idea that it's like Joseph, he entered into slavery because of the code, just as Christ, he entered into servitude for the sake of the nations of the world whom he came to save. Right? That's the other analogy here. Christ, he allowed himself to be sold into slavery. He allowed himself to suffer. He allowed himself to, to, be, to incarnate for the sake of the people he wanted to save, just as Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers because they were jealous of his coat. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Right. So even though Jacob was wrong to to you know to have favoritism, right? But his brothers are also wrong in the way they dealt with it, right? Just even if his brother was not being just or his uh, their father was not being just and treating them all the same. The, the response that the brothers had toward Joseph was not the right response. First of all, it was not Joseph's fault that he was being treated this way, right? It was not his fault. He was their younger brother. He was immature. He was inexperienced. He didn't understand. They, their role should have been to protect him, to guide him, to teach him, not to be jealous of him and attack him, right? That's not, the, that's not what they should have done, right? Um, but it also didn't help what we read here in the previous uh, chapter or the previous verse where it says then joseph brought a brought a bad report of them to his father right so in addition to him having special status as being the the one who's the eldest to receive the, the double portion of inheritance in addition to him coming from the preferred wife and in addition to him receiving all these gifts right he's also a tattletale you know like he's 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 seeing the things that his brothers are doing wrong and there's going to the father and he's saying, look, your brothers are doing this, this, and this, okay? Not necessarily the wisest thing to do, right? Just because we see somebody doing something wrong doesn't mean it's the wisest thing to, to do to go and to report them for what they are doing, right? We have to be discerning in what we are doing, right? It's not explained here exactly what the brothers were doing wrong, okay? But more and more, the brothers are seeing him as like a thorn in their side. They really don't want him around. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. Again, another, like this is a dream from God that he's about to, he's receiving, okay? But just because you receive a dream from God doesn't mean that it's right to go talk about it 
you know, to, to people who are already sensitive toward you, it's not going to make your situation better, but you're going to tell them about your dream. Okay, again, this is a matter of discernment. Yes. How would you like for instance, you can go tell his father about the dream. You say, look, I received this dream, right? Um, and, and the understanding of it was clear that it was saying that all his brothers would bow down to him, okay? He can, he can be excited that that's a dream that he had and he wanted to share the dream. Go share it with your father. You don't have to go share it with the people that are going to bow down to you, especially when they don't like you already, right? So he's telling them this dream now. Saying, there we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf, right? Like, they didn't understand that this was a prophecy. They didn't understand that this was a vision from God, right? This could be just what's in the mind of this young boy who feels himself to be such, you know, like treated in such a special way feels himself to be better than the others in the minds of his brothers, at least they could be thinking that. Um, and, and so they're just angry with him. Like, look, at, who are, why are you thinking you're better than us? You know, and this dream is confirming, right? In their minds that he thinks that they're better, that he's better than them. Yes. Well, I mean, you could ask that about anyone, right? Like, why did God choose Abraham? Why did he choose his father? Why did God choose Isaac and not Esau? You know, or, or not, um, not, um, I don't know, Isaac was the only one. <laughs> why, 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 like, yeah, why did he choose Jacob instead of Esau? Like, why did God choose anyone to do anything, right? Um, ultimately, God knows the hearts of the servants that he chooses, and he knows how they will act in the future. He knows if they are going to be able to bear the responsibility of what they're going to be called to do. God knows the heart, right? And he knew, for instance, look at the things that Joseph endured faithfully, right? Jo Joseph endured so many things faithfully. Joseph served his brothers, forgave his brothers, saved his brothers, even though they despised him and they sold him to slavery. Like imagine the pain that you would feel if your own like brother or sister sold you as a slave, threw you in a pit, sold you as a slave, left you for dead, lied about your death, never admitted what even happened. And then later on, they're coming for your help. What would your reaction be to them? How, how difficult would it be to serve them, to love them, to care for them and to treat them as though nothing ever happened, right? Not anyone could do that, right? So God, looking at knowing the people, right, knowing knowing us, He chooses, right? And He says Joseph is the one who can do this job, you know. But I, I can't I can't give you insight as to like specifically why Him, right? Other than the fact that God judges us and knows us. Yeah. When we speak about predestination being wrong, we speak about it in terms of salvation. Right? We say, okay, God is not going to choose certain people for salvation and reject other people, and it's like that's it. It has nothing to do with your will. Okay, but there's nothing wrong with God choosing certain people for a certain role, like Saint John the Baptist. Obviously, he was chosen before he was born, right? Now, God knows, of course, who he is going to be, but he chose him. Like, you are, this is your destiny. Your destiny is this. St. John the Baptist had the freedom to reject that destiny. He had the freedom to reject, you know, this if he wanted to, but he didn't, right? He, he, he you know, uh, St. Peter, for instance. St. Peter was chosen as apostle. That was his, that was his, his role. That was God what chose him. Right, but St. Peter chose to reject Christ, right? Thank God he repented afterward, but that was his free choice. Judas chose was chosen just as St. Peter. It wasn't that God wanted Judas to, to, to betray him, 
but he knew that that was what was going to happen, going to Sharif's point, well, that was the foreknowledge, right? God can choose individual people for a special role, a special purpose. It's okay. That's not, that is a choice that like God is choosing. That's okay, right? That's up to him to choose. That's his understanding, his wisdom to choose what is right. But it's up to us. It's not forced on us in the sense that there's nothing I can do about it. No, I can always reject it if I, if I choose, right? Okay, so after he tells them the dream of the chiefs, right? So it says, and his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Okay, so this has gotten really bad. And this you can kind of see maybe that Joseph was a little naive. Okay, still. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers again. Like, okay, you, you, like you could have just realized that it wasn't the best thing to do the first time and not say it again, but he said it again. Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me, right? The 11 stars, which are his brothers, okay? Yes. No, I was wondering, like, do the 11 stars, does it have, like, some sort of astrological meaning to it? Or is it just, like, saying 11 I think I think it's referring to his brothers. I mean, I don't I, I don't know if there's another meaning, but that's my understanding. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him. Even his father is telling him, right? What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down, come to bow down to the earth before you? Like, like, you know, like like it's too much. Like what you're saying is too much. So really, they did understand that the dreams are from God. But also, he, he, he could have kept it to himself. Like, you know, like the verse that speaks about St. Mary? And St. Mary is seeing the Lord, her son, being exalted. And, 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 and when it says that he's growing in wisdom and stature with God and men, when she sees, like, the amazing things that he's doing, and imagine being the mother of God and seeing all the, the things that are happening that are not even recorded in the Bible for us to know, right? It says what she kept all these things in her heart. St. Mary is such like a wonderful example of like someone with the virtue of silence and humility that she has like a front row seat to the, the miracles of the universe. Like, like she, for her, every day is like a day filled with like unbelievable things, right? And she's not talking about it to anyone. She, she didn't go put it on social media. She didn't, she didn't do anything. Like nowadays it's like the, the smallest, most insignificant thing that happens to us and like we have to tell the world about it. Why do I care so much about everything that the world thinks? Like, like that's not, it's not healthy, right? Just keep it to yourself. You know, keep it to yourself. Like, you don't have to share everything, right? Because sometimes without realizing it, we start living with the purpose of wanting the approval, the amazement of others. We want the likes of others, the comments of others, the, the, the attention of others, because that becomes what we feed on, right? But St. Mary didn't need any of that. She was, she had the, the, the most right to boast out of anyone who's ever lived. And she didn't boast a single time. She remained so silent, right? Even after it was known that he was the savior of the resurrection, you never read about her going and preaching or doing anything. She's like just this silent, like content, virtuous, holy woman, right? So, so here, this is the opposite of what Joseph is doing. Right? Joseph is excited because of this. Like when, when St. Paul was speaking to the Corinthians about speaking in tongues, right? He rebuked them and he said, speak tongues to yourself. If there's no one that's going to, if there's no one that's going to like interpret and no one's going to edify the church, be joyful that the Holy Spirit is working in you. You don't have to go blab about it. You don't have to, you don't have to go and say, you know what? God has given me the gift of speaking in tongues. So I'm just going to go speak in tongues because that's the gift that I have. And showing it off right? He says the purpose of the gift is to edify the church, and if there's no one to interpret what you are speaking, then just stay silent, right? Here, Joseph is receiving something from God. It is indeed from God as a prophecy, but it doesn't mean that the right thing to do is to talk about it with anyone, right? Of course, he was young, you know, he was a young boy. He doesn't understand, and he is naive, and so he is speaking, and actually God uses this mistake that he is doing here, as a way to further the story, right? As a way actually to accomplish his will. 
God is using his own mistake to do it. You know, like you can think about what was in Joseph's mind, you know, after, after, after he's enslaved now. Does he think, go, think back to himself? It's like, you know what? If only I had kept my mouth shut. You know, if only I hadn't said anything. Maybe this wouldn't have happened to me. And maybe sometimes we feel that mistakes that we make actually cause us to be out of the will of God. Like I made a mistake, and because of that mistake now, like I ruined something, I messed up something, God cannot work with me anymore. Like maybe sometimes some things in our life, we, we think of it that way. But God actually can use our mistakes because God factors our, our mistakes into the equation. Like God is not thrown off by our mistakes. God knows the mistakes that we're going to make beforehand. So maybe even the mistakes that we make, God turns it from good. This is like Romans 8, 28, right? It says that all things work for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even when I fail, even when I make a mistake, God can factor it in and turn it into something good, okay? And certainly here, the mistakes that Joseph made, God will turn into good, okay? These dreams are also part of the messianic prophecy, right? In the sense that what all the people are bowing down before the Savior, Remember, Joseph represents the Lord, right? And so here, this dream, everyone is bowing down before him. And his brothers envied him, but his father kept these things in mind. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Remember Shechem, okay? Who was Shechem? The man who raped Dina and, and who was killed. They killed him. They killed his father, right? His father's name was Hamor, okay? So all of the stuff that they had, they most likely confiscated it, right? So all this stuff, when he says they went to go feed their father, father's flock in Shechem, most likely this is the flock that used to be Shechem's. It used to be Hamor's flock, but now is theirs. And Israel said to Joseph, are, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said, here I am. So his father, right, so he being young, was not there with them, but his father told him, go and, and see them. Then he said to him, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So what do you think that his brothers are going to understand when now Joseph is coming, sent by their father? What are they going to think? Yeah, like he's, yeah, he's going to go and give a report, right? So it's like, all right, are you doing the right thing or not? If you're not doing the right thing, then go tell dad that you're not doing the right thing. Right? So again, that's in the mind of the brothers. That's how they're thinking. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Okay. So this represents... Okay, this idea that Jacob, remember, who does Jacob represent in the spiritual sense? The father. And Joseph represents the son. So here the father is sending the son, right, on a mission. Okay, this is the father sending the son on a mission. Okay, Father Caesarius of Arles, this is what he says. He says, Jacob sent his son to proclaim his worry for their safety. And God the father sent his only begotten son to visit mankind, who were weak with sin, a lost flock. As Joseph sought his brothers, he wandered in the wilderness. And the Lord Christ, as he sought mankind, he wandered in the world. Joseph sought his brothers in Shechem as the sinners gave their backs to the righteous. Right? So again, the analogy here that the father is sending the son to his people on a mission of love. This is what Jacob here is doing, sending his son Joseph to check on his other sons. <clears throat> Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. So they were mad to see him. They didn't want to see him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Right? He's a dreamer because he likes to dream and talk about his dreams. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. 
and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Joseph's brothers, right, could be likened to the Jews who were envious of Christ, right? The, the Jesus was born as a Jew, okay? So the other Jews who were envious of him, it's similar to hear how Joseph's brothers were envious of Joseph. Father Caesarius, he also says, as Joseph's brothers harbored envy, giving to the brotherly, giving to the brotherly love their backs and not their faces, the Jews preferred envy over love toward him who offered them salvation, right? They didn't recognize him. Here, it, Joseph's brothers totally, definitely did not recognize that their brother is going to be the reason for their salvation. Like, they're not bowing down before him for nothing. Like, they're bowing down before him because he is going to be the one to save them from death, right? Just as Christ did, even with the Jews, even those Jews who, who crucified him, he actually came to save them. And this is what Joseph, the same with Joseph. Joseph is there to save his brothers. They don't recognize it. They kill him, right? Uh, or they, they kill him in a spiritual sense, right? By throwing him into the pit, okay? But but God turns it into something for this their own salvation, okay? And so they're saying here, um, let's let's throw him in the pit and pretend like some wild beast has devoured him, right? Um, they took his tunic, right? Just as they took the clothes of Christ. Remember they, the, the soldiers, they took the clothes of Christ um, and they cast lots for it to see who would take it. Just like here, they're taking the tunic of Joseph. He was thrown down into a pit just as Christ was thrown into Hades, right? He went down into Hades. Um, Joseph comes up from the pit, okay? And was sold to the Gentiles just as Christ resurrected from the dead and became the price of salvation for the Gentiles, okay? And then... So we see a lot of parallels here to what is happening to Joseph. He was, he, was, he was just as good as dead in their eyes, okay? But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. So remember, the original plan is kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben actually didn't want to kill him, right? He wanted to find a he wanted to come up with some plan where he would be able to, like, he was buying time, essentially, so he could go on his own and try to save Joseph and return him to his father again. But he wasn't courageous enough to simply stand before them and say, no, this is wrong. Remember, Reuben is the oldest, right? Um, it's most likely that his words could have had some kind of influence on them. He could have stood up and said, no, this is wrong. We can't, we can't do this to our brother, right? But he didn't do that. He, he tried to find a way to save him, but he wasn't able to, right? Instead of being um, direct, uh, he, he tried to find another way. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his, of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, just as they stripped the clothes of Christ before his crucifixion. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Okay, this represents the crucifixion itself. And they sat down to eat a meal. They, then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Okay. What is the spiritual parallel of the idea that they ate a meal? It's not communion. It's not the last supper, but you're close. Who's eating the meal? The, 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 people, the people who crucified Christ are eating the meal. right? The, the brothers, the ones who threw them in the pit, are the ones that are eating the meal. So what meal is it? The Passover meal. right? You remember the the, the Pharisees, they were like, we have to crucify him quickly. Why do we want to crucify him quickly? Because we have to eat the Passover the next day. And so he can't, we can't be involved in this crucifixion thing, you know, uh, during the Passover. So let's crucify him quickly. Let's get him down from the cross quickly, right? So we can go eat the Passover the next day, right? 
So this is exactly the same thing. Here they, after they quote unquote crucify him by throwing him in the pit, they sat down to eat. And, 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 and look at the coldness. Like, can you imagine like, you just threw your brother into a pit to die. Okay, and then you're like sitting around eating. You know, like, like it's so, so evil, so evil. But as they were sitting there, providence, God's plan begins to work. And there is this company of Ishmaelites that come, okay, that they were not expecting. So Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? So on the one hand, maybe you can look at Judah and you say, well, okay, he's trying to find some way not to kill him. But what he's actually doing is he's trying to profit. Like he's trying, he's saying, what's even better than killing him is selling him as a slave so we can get money. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listen. Really? Like he's our brother and our flesh. So we're going to sell him as a slave instead. Like that doesn't even make sense. But you see how he was vocal and he spoke. If Reuben would have said something, he might have been able to change the situation, but he just, he chose not to. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt, okay? So just as Judah here proposes to sell Joseph, Judas is sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Right? Judah is the one who is proposing the idea of selling him. Right? Judas in the New Testament is the one who actually sold, sold the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Yes. So if Reuben was trying to save Joseph while Judah sold Joseph, why did Judah receive uh, like why are he like taught and I think like the blessing that they get to not Reuben, like he said. Well, Reuben, Reuben was despised for other reasons. I mean, none of the brothers were the best, you know. And actually, in the, in the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, I think it's chapter 50, Jacob will actually give a blessing to every single son. And some of them are not blessings, but curses, okay? And essentially, in that, he will recount, okay, the, the, the deeds of each one of them, and what is it that is going to happen to them and to their descendants in the future as a result of, of what they've done and who they are? And, 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 and so, so it, is, it is based on this that Judah is the one who is to become the tribe that the Messiah is to be born from. Not necessarily based on any specific mistake. I mean, if you look at Jacob himself, I mean, Jacob himself, he did a lot of mistakes and sins, right? And he, you know. He, he, he deceived his father to steal the blessing from, from his brother. And like, he, he did all these things. So don't look at it from the perspective of, okay, if anybody does something wrong, then that means that they lose that, you know? Yeah. So why was Judah chosen again to be uh, the tribe where Christ comes from? Um, I'm trying to remember what it said. I think we'll get to that when we get to the Genesis chapter 50. I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, why it was specifically him. Yeah. Another interesting thing to note here is that the Midianites are, and the, Ish, and the Ishmaelites are like the same people, right? So it's referring to them by both names. Who are the Ishmaelites, by the way? The descendants of Ishmael, the son of Hagar and Abraham. Okay. They're relatives, but the Ishmaelites were not God-fearing. Okay. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. So, right, because they sold him. Now Reuben is like coming back, trying to like find him so that they would, that he could save him, right? But he couldn't find him because he, he was already gone. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? Why do you think Reuben is so interested in that? Because he's the oldest, and so what? He is the responsible one, right? So when he goes back to his father, so now you, again, you see maybe what was in the motivation of Reuben wasn't so much, well, I love my brother and I want to save him. It's more, I want to save myself. Because when I go back to my father, right, I will be held responsible for what happened to him. 
right? Because I'm the oldest one. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? So what are they doing with that? Why are they doing that? Yeah, they're trying to make it just look like he was killed by an animal, right? And so that they are free. Because again, the father is the one who sent Joseph on this pretty long journey alone to go and find his brothers, right? Jacob is the one who sent him. So for the rest of Jacob's life, he is going to believe that he is to blame. If, if I, I shouldn't have ever sent my son on this journey, right? And that this happened to him. And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without, without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. The idea also that there is blood on the tunic, again, when you look at it from the pure spiritual perspective, it's like the, the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for our salvation, right? Here, Joseph was sold into slavery. His tunic, okay, had blood on it. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. There's also some kind of uh, justice in this because Jacob had deceived in his own life, right? Jacob, Jacob was not the most innocent, right? In his own life, uh, having deceived his brother, having deceived his father, okay? And now it's kind of like God is allowing him to taste the bitterness of being deceived himself, okay? On a number of occasions, not, not just here. You see that he was deceived by his uncle uh, uh, Laban, right? He, 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 there's a lot of things that are going to befall Jacob that are kind of like justice for things that he had done earlier in his life, okay? And so Jacob was going to live very bitterly. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guard, okay? So we know Joseph is going to end up being a slave. Uh, in the house of Potiphar, okay? Uh, this man, Potiphar, he was a captain of the guard, and his name is, means uh, Ra, god of the sun. So he's like a, it's like his name is associated with Ra, okay? Um, so, so we're going to get to the rest of the story of Joseph. Um, I think this is a good stopping point for today. Next chapter in chapter 38 is kind of like a side. It's not related to this story. It's related to Judah, okay, and uh, a sin that Judah commits uh, and, and what happens with him. And this is a completely separate story from this. And then after that, we'll return back again to, um, you know, continuing the story of Joseph. Anyone have any questions? Yes. Is it right to say that God saw Joseph's like the suffering that Joseph has seen in Egypt was far better than how it would have been like I mean, definitely the family of Jacob was not the ideal family, uh, but you have to compare that to being a slave, you know, like at least Joseph had the favor of his father. He was well treated by his father and he had freedom to do as he wanted to and he was taken care of. Whereas in Egypt, uh, he was living as a slave who was deceived by or, or he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. He was put into prison um, and this whole ordeal for him lasted around 14 years. Right. So while at the end you see like Joseph is elevated and he has like a very good life, but that period of 14 years, you know, being alone, away from his family, without any unknown knowledge of what was happening. Like, God never explained to him 
Like you never see God from the beginning appearing to Joseph and being like, be patient, Joseph. You know, everything's going to be fine. This is all part of the plan. Just wait and you'll see. Like, you know, like if God had done that, there maybe would have been some reason for him to be hopeful and patient. But this is one of the virtues of Joseph is he remained faithful to God and, and didn't like turn his back on God, even in the midst of that complete uncertainty. As far as Joseph understood, he was going to just die in prison and that was it. Like he didn't, there was no indication to him of what was going to end up happening, right? So I can't, I can't say that it would have been, that that was better for him, you know? I think it was a very difficult life. Okay, glory be to God forever.